Cybersecurity is a complex puzzle, a logic problem for the IT security team. What to let in, who to keep out, when and why. Teams can choose from the best array of tools and platforms money can buy to enhance and fine-tune protections. But as the song goes, the devil is in the fine details. One false move, a simple misconfiguration here, or interoperability miss there, can transform your cyber protection into an active threat. Hi, I'm Ken Cadet, and this is the Untrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. Joining me today to unlock this puzzle are Samantha Maybe, Untrust Director of Digital Security Solutions. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. And we have Tushar Tambe, VP of Product Development at Untrust. Welcome, Tushar. Great to be here, Ken. All right, so Tushar, let's start by addressing this puzzle organizations often face. Um, how can cybersecurity solutions turn into headaches for IT? Well, it's an interesting paradox, isn't it? The very tools you implemented to enhance security end up causing you security issues. Um, in my experience, this happens in most organizations over time when they reach a certain scale and a level of complexity. Right? And you know, to give you a, a concrete example from my world of encryption and key management, uh, most enterprises know that they should be protecting data by encrypting it. So they start doing that, all good. And they figure out, you know, I'm creating a lot of these keys and certs and secrets, and I need a key management system or a cert management system to secure all these cryptographic assets. So they go get one. But then what happens over time is that the number and complexities of these keys and secrets grows exponentially. So you have keys for, you know, SSH keys for logging into servers. You have keys to protect your cloud workloads, keys for data at rest encryption at the disk level, at the database level, at the application levels. You have keys for your CI/CD pipelines. And pretty soon, these organizations start struggling. They can no longer tell who owns the key, who, who created the key, who has current access rights to it, what workloads and data it protects. You know, does the key have to stay in certain geos to comply with local government laws? Does the key have to have a hardware root of trust? Is the key PQ safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, from this chaotic state of affairs, uh, which was described by a customer to me as uh, less of a key management system and more of a key graveyard, um, it's it's not hard to imagine breaches and compliance violations happening. You know, and oftentimes organizations, when these breaches happen, they cannot even tell the impact, you know, the blast radius of uh, the key that got compromised. And, and all this, just keep in mind, is just a single example from one area uh, of, of one security tool. Yeah, and I think even at the surface, if I can jump in here, you know, there is that more simple problem that we have where, you know, we're hearing from organizations that, you know, there's no clear ownership of the IT landscape or they're lacking skills and resources either to evaluate what's currently in their environment or implementing new technology. And of course, over time, other problems have developed, you know, whether it's um, having old technology in your system, you know, a, tech, a PKI that was implemented 20 years ago by someone who has long since left the organization or through acquisition, just knowing what's in your landscape, having that sort of technology sprawl can also create a lot of these complexities. It sounds incredibly complex. Is there like a way to, you know, look at like, is there a top five list or a top 10 list of like common things that everyone should look for? I don't know if there's a 
one global top 10 list of mis misconfigurations that just seems um, to cover such a wide area of wide number of use cases. Um, I'd say you could go use case by use case, you know, uh, this, you know, people related, you know, access control uh, use case and this top 10 risks of uh, in that an example would be overprivileged admin or not implementing least privileged access. Um, there's, you know, server related, uh, you know, misconfigurations typically of unpatched servers. Uh, there's encryption uh, related use cases around, you know, unrotated keys or, or, you know, or not binding keys to hardware root of trust and not binding them to particular geos. Uh, there's, you know, cloud security risks of, you know, unsecured image repositories uh, and having vulnerable images being deployed and so on. So I think uh, you know later on in the in in this talk we might you know talk about certain frameworks for these use cases to consider these use cases and then quantify uh, you know top ten risks in each use case. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like every company goes through a ton of change. Um, but, you know, are there uh, you know whether it's mergers and acquisitions, whether it's you know changes in the organization, IT is certainly there's outsourcing. IT is not immune from any of this. Um, and information security certainly isn't. Are there some key turning points that like IT security professionals should be watching for um, where some of these hidden risks might pop up? So I like to approach it in a slightly different way because yes, it's absolutely true that certain events, you know, mergers and acquisitions, outsourcing, you know, new people coming in, all of those are great examples of when your risks increase uh, or there's a potential for risks to increase. Um, I like to uh, counsel enterprises in, in a way where they don't pay, you know, particular attention to these turning points, as you call them, uh, and instead look at this as a continuous assessment, right? The change is constant. Um, they need to constantly assess where they are uh, in, in where their security posture is, assess, quantify, uh, and do this over and over again. I mean, there is no, uh, you know, run your security risk assessment only at the time of mergers and acquisition or when you've acquired a company or you've expanded. Uh, do it continuously, uh, get a read continuously, and keep refining it continuously. Yeah, so it's it's at the foundation level, right? It's, so it's, you, there's no there's no rest for the weary, in other words. Exactly. <laughs> um, we hear a lot in the media these days about shadow IT. It seems like um, it seems like it's a topic that comes and goes all the time. But um, how, does does shadow IT play a role in this in this scenario? That's a great question. I think the rise of cloud computing uh, over the last ten years. And the ability to spin up workloads on your own um, without involving IT, without involving IT infosec, has been you know great for developer productivity. Uh, but it also has meant that IT no longer has visibility or control over these environments that are getting spun up, um, and they can be spun up really fast. It's also uh, created a higher likelihood that these environments are not as locked down. Uh, they aren't running all the security tools they need to. Uh, there's higher possibility that vulnerable images are getting deployed in these environments. Um, and thus, there's a higher likelihood of breaches happening. It's not like 
if you aren't watching uh, the risks there because you're spinning up these workloads, you're setting up, you know, build pipelines there, you're putting code out there, you're putting critical applications and data out there, um, then it's very, very easy to misconfigure these environments and expose your uh, your enterprise to additional risk. Um, and IT is typically playing catch up in this scenario. So how can how can IT get ahead of it? What are some things you can do? It's a combination of people, process, and tools. You know, the reason uh, Shadow IT emerged is developers found it really cumbersome to keep approaching a central organization to set up infrastructure. And it was just far easier for them to swipe a credit card and get things going in the cloud. Uh, and that's where this whole you know problem emerged of shadow IT organization. Modern IT organizations need to understand that and not try and stop people from spinning up these environments, but encourage spinning these environments up in a safe manner. Uh, so good uh, enterprises that are more mature about this actually encourage developers to spin up these environments, but they've already put guardrails in place and tooling in place so that some of the burden of uh, spinning up this infrastructure is gone, but you are uh, from the ground up building in the right tooling and security in these environments. Yeah, totally makes sense. So let, let's um, let's shift over and and talk a little bit about um, regulations and compliance, which uh, I, th I think you brought up um, earlier in this. Sam, maybe talk to us a little bit about how these factors contribute to some of the hidden risks we've been talking about. Yeah, of course. I think the great news here is that you know any sort of regulatory and compliance that we're seeing out there is intended to help. So you know we're learning kind of from past mistakes. And in a lot of cases, government is leading the way. So, you know, we're seeing that um, memo from the White House on improving the nation's cybersecurity. That was, you know, years ago. Uh, we're hearing them talk about regulations around, you know, what to do to prepare for post-quantum or, you know, considerations with AI. Um, we've got this super buzzy term that, you know, we've talked about before of, of zero trust. And they've actually put some sort of concrete action and real direction behind it. So, you know, with the government leading the way, I think that that's a really strong indicator for everybody to to pay attention to these regulations and, you know, what they need to do um, to be compliant. So obviously, with government leading the way, this applies a lot to federal agencies, but we can sort of expect this will roll out to everyone. And what a lot of these do as far as, you know, uncovering hidden risks, it talks about some of those common risks and, you know, really providing direction on how to mitigate them or talking about key use cases that are out there, uh, the level of security that you might want that might be required for each of those use cases and other considerations. So if we look at something you know, going back to zero trust, um, there's a, a CISA zero trust maturity model. So that is very common for a, a lot of organizations to look to. It is absolutely tailored for federal agencies. And, you know, they even say, I think it's on page two of their most recent document, that it's one of many paths organizations can look to when they're thinking about their own transition to zero trust. Um, you know, but Gartner 
has its own sort of set of pillars that is based on that. Uh, other government organizations have their own sort of principles or directions that they're looking to. I really just think that they're, they've acknowledged what's out there. You know, we've all seen the news articles. We've seen what some of the past mistakes are. And I think, you know, federal agencies, uh, organizations alike, just no one wants to be in that position to be in the news that way. So I really do think that, you know, it's great that it's intending to help. It can also be overwhelming because there's there's a lot out there. Um, but, you know, nobody has to accomplish everything all at once. It is it's just good direction that we're seeing. I love the positive view of that. I mean, I think there's there's it seems like there are so many cases where where compliance, if done right, can give you some guidelines that will help you sort of visualize some of the things you need to do. One of the things we've been talking about is this challenge of challenges complexity that we talked about earlier. Um, are 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 these are these mandates kind of helping with that? Yeah, so I think the the challenge of complexity, it really does depend on on who you are, you know what your environment uh, consists of. There's definitely some guidance again, when it comes to those common risks or common use cases that, you know, pretty much every business organization agency all have in common, but it is kind of left up to you to interpret those as they apply to your organization. So again, talking about the CISA maturity model, it's not a one size fits all, but there's multiple models and guidance out there. So, you know, every organization, I love this term, every organization is a snowflake. So what your environment consists of, what your infrastructure looks like, how your uh, technology is deployed, that's unique to you. So you need to find that model that best fits in to what, what it is, where you are and where you need to be. So it does definitely uh, address those challenges of complexity and try to provide that guidance. But again, because everybody's a snowflake, it is open to some interpretation. Are there some proactive steps that uh, organizations can take when looking at uh, how, how they're dealing with these compliance issues? Absolutely. So I think we've talked about it, you know, quite a bit and I'll say it quite a bit more, but uh, I think it really is visibility into what's in your environments, you know, that for sort of discovery or assessment, that can be the hardest part, you know, organizations struggle to know exactly what's in their environment, uh, any sort of current deployments, dependencies, not knowing where they're at on that journey. You know, if we talk about zero trust again, um, you know, where are you at with your IAM? Where are you at with your device security? So I think that, you know, knowing where you're at, that initial discovery and assessment is important, visibility into your environment, and then of course, building in crypto agility so that you can make any changes that are required, whether that be today or of course in the future. You started to talk about zero trust a bit. Um, maybe let's like, give an overview of that. It seems like, you know, you said it's, you know, obviously buzzy term. Everybody's been talking about it. It seems like you know, you ask 10 people, you'll get 15 opinions on what exactly zero trust is. Um, how do we, how should, how do we look at zero trust? How should organizations look at, look at that concept and, and how does it help, you know, with the, really the problem we're talking about, about sort of creating that foundation to deal with these hidden risks and make sure that they don't stay hidden. So yeah, definitely zero trust is a hard one because some people have zero trust fatigue because it was a buzzword. Um, but now that there's actual regulation and guidance behind it, I think that it's definitely changed. You still see varying degrees of 
understanding of what zero trust is and varying degrees of knowledge that even some of these frameworks exist. So I think the first part is just to acknowledge that zero trust is a real thing. It's a best practice for cybersecurity. Um, and it's ultimately a strategy designed to mitigate cyber attacks by eliminating trust from digital systems. So um, as far as implementing it into your own environment and looking at different frameworks, um, I actually heard an analyst recently say, you know, one of the most important things to do when it comes to zero trust is just to start. So no matter where you are, you know, talking about that assessment, that discovery, um, you really do need to discover where you are. And that's just best practices. That's cybersecurity hygiene, you know, whether it is zero trust. And again, I mentioned post-quantum really quickly. You have to know what's in your environment. Um, you know, what are you trying to protect here? It's, you know, if it's your data, well, where is your data reside? What are the data flows? Understand that classify your data. So, you know, know which is the most sensitive, prioritize. Um, but also knowing, you know, going back to digital security, what cryptographic assets do you have in your environment? Where do those reside? Match it up with that data that we talked about. Um, when it comes to zero trust as well, determine where it is that you are with your current zero trust implementation and where it is you need to be. So, you know, of course, CISA has has the pillars, you know, identity, devices, network, you can look at those and sort of have a bit more of a bite size approach to what it is you need to do. Um, look at each of those use cases. And unlike the CISA model, I'm definitely sort of, you know, don't say, oh, we're only at traditional, we need to get to optimal. Your organization, if we look at it instead of a scale of one to five, your organization might be at a one right now when it comes to devices. But you might not need to be at a five. You might just need to be at a, at a three. And, you know, again, iterative and incremental is sort of the, the name of the game when it comes to zero trust. So let's get you from a one to a two, from a two then to a three. So just don't think that you have to do everything all together all at once. It really is a journey. And it really is something that you do over time. You just need to sort of prioritize the what, prioritize the where, and, and just get there iteratively and incrementally. And then, of course, zero trust, um, it's built around, you know, three different principles, which are verify explicitly, least privilege access, and assume breach. So just keep those in mind as you go along, you know. So verify explicitly, that's sort of an identity-first approach to, to your security. And least privilege access to what, you know. So sort of going back to that data, what it is, what is it that you're trying to limit access to? You know, only these people can access this thing at this time, um, minimum access in order to do your job. And then assuming breach, you know, that's sort of creating uh, that micro perimeter around what it is that you're trying to secure. So that way, you know, you're minimizing any impact should something, um, you know, of course, breach occur. It's incredibly, it's incredibly complex. Um, it, it, it's incredibly complex. And yet what, what it sounds like is that you're saying is that, um, it's not so much, it, it's a journey, but it's not so much, a, it's not so much a journey to somewhere, but it's just a, a continuous journey, it right? Um, uh, Tushar, how do you, um, you know, how do you help clients get their heads around all of this? Do, um, yeah, Sam mentioned the CISA model. I know there's other standards as well. How does, how do you think about this stuff and how does it, how does it help from a customer point of view? Yeah, so I think, you know, your journey begins with you 
quantifying what your risk is. And in order to quantify that risk, um, quantify your security posture, you need a framework. You know, it can't be done, you know, uh, in isolation. You need a framework. And there's some really excellent work being done by NIST uh, that have produced standards like the NIST 853 for infrastructure, 857 for cryptographic assets, and several others. Uh, the NSA has defined a, a zero trust maturity model, which which provides enterprises with a framework of you know five different pillars: users, devices, data, workloads, network, and infrastructure. Uh, and I encourage, uh, you know, I tell them you cannot protect what you cannot see. So you start, need to discover uh, the assets that you're trying to protect. Uh, oftentimes, you know, it might seem seem strange, but um, uh, oftentimes, organizations are even unable to discover all the at-risk assets. Uh, you know, whether whether it be because of the shadow IT or because of expansion through you know mergers and acquisitions or whatever the cause, but discovery uh, of these assets uh, is the first step. Defining a standard that your organization is trying to reach. You know, however far you are from that standard, but you know you can start with these out-of-the-box standards that uh, these agencies have put in place or these frameworks that have been put, put in place, but mature organizations, you know, take from there, but don't stop there. They they refine these, uh, you know, standards to to fit their environment, to fit, fit their particular uh, models, um, and then do a continuous assessment. I'm a big believer in continuous assessment um, because, A, you're not going to fix everything, so you need to know whether what steps you're taking are taking you towards the standard that you're trying to achieve or away from it, right? Uh, that's one. And B, change is happening in your organization all the time. So even if you know the standard hasn't changed or you haven't taken any steps, you might notice drift away from the goals that you're trying to achieve. So uh, evaluate often, uh, evaluate early, evaluate often, quantify the risk, uh, and then have a goal in mind and drive uh, visibility, uh, put that risk front and center. We try and in our products, we try and quantify the risks uh, associated with the you know the assets that we are trying to protect and make it clear for the customer why they are scoring low, uh, yeah, on certain things. And if that's the case, then there's there's just more likelihood that they're trying to taking the steps to reach a higher level of maturity. Uh, but yeah, do it continuously. Do it you know uh, all the time. Yeah, I wanted to follow up for, for and this question for either of you uh, on something you said about discovery. And, um, you know, I know like the people in the processes, you talk about people, processes and tools and, and the people in processes obviously are critical to make sure you're doing that work. What is the state of the tools for discovery? How hard is it? Like, How big a challenge is this um, to find um, the, you know, all the all the assets that you need to protect and all those all those spaces and and hidden challenges are, are the tools you know are the tools there uh, is it a combination of kind of tools and help from you know help from outside parties for example or uh, you know w w what is the state of things in that yeah I, I can take a first track at it I think you know uh, it helps to give you know concrete examples here so there's discovery tools um, that are out there that will uh, and you know you can definitely refer to tools from interest, uh, compliance specific tools from interest in, in that regard. Where we will, uh, if we if we spot an asset or if we discover an asset that isn't 
compliant, um, we can allow organizations to limit its usage. Uh, you know, I like to give this example of, uh, hey, uh, you have a, you know, we talk about people, process, and tools, right? So the process is whenever I, I create a uh, cryptographic asset like a key, um, I, as the InfoSec head, want to make sure that the key is documented, right? That there's clear ownership, there's, you know, usage, uh, there's any legal requirements, all of these things are documented around those keys. Um, and if I discover keys that are not following these standards, then I can put these keys in a in a in a state where uh, I will disallow usage, and therefore force the right behavior uh, from my admins. Uh, that don't, you cannot actually use these until the they are documented properly. It's a very simple thing, but it encourages the right practices uh, and the right hygiene around protecting these keys. Um, so there's there's tools that will discover your assets. That there's tools that will encourage you know the best behavior. Uh, I encourage customers to go and uh, look for these and and you know make compliance part of their security. It's not just you know key or secrets or you know, certificate management. It's about are you being compliant in your usage and storage of these assets. And I think even just to follow on to that, you know, once you've done that discovery you know, security best practices is making sure that you have the right tools in place to centralize these these assets and to manage them properly and have that automation layer built in so that you can have that sort of ongoing compliance and visibility as, as you move on. I think that makes a lot of sense. So the tools are there, the, uh, you know, in, in the people and pr- there's, there's models that'll help you put the people and processes um, in the right place. Um, any final thoughts for um, you know for listeners um, for listeners as they think about uh, how to better manage these hidden risks? Sam, why don't we start with you? Sure. So I I'd probably say just you know let's remove the hidden risks part. You know just get started on that journey. Uh, do that discovery. Do that assessment. You know if you are looking to uh, implement a best practice like zero trust into your overall digital security strategy. Just by starting and, you know, having any sort of incremental improvements, again, it is an iterative and incremental process that you should do in pieces or layers over time. Uh, A quote I heard that I love, and I I think that this is a great sort of takeaway, is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So again, don't overwhelm yourself. Don't think I have to go from that one to that five. That might not be right for you and your use case and what your organization's security requirements are. So just you know, look at what you have, look at where you are, where you need to be, and just make that sort of change iteratively, incrementally, um, and augment what current uh, technologies you have in place today. Tushar, any final thoughts? Yeah, so we've covered most of this ground already, but I'd like to emphasize, you know, don't be shy of, you know, evaluating your security posture. Uh, I, I find sometimes People don't do it because our organizations don't do it for fear of what they'll find. Um, and that's okay. I think the journey to security begins with discovery and getting visibility uh, about where your security posture is weak. And just measuring and quantifying that risk brings the right level of attention that then leads to uh, those issues getting addressed over time and your security posture improving over time. So continuous assessment, don't don't wait to start. Absolutely. Knowing is half the battle, right? 
Well, Sam, uh, Tushar, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. And thank you all for listening. Our podcast was produced by Stephen Damone. If you like what you hear, I encourage you to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can email your opinions and ideas to cybersecurityinstitute at ntrust.com. And until next time, thank you. Thank you.